Touch them all, Joe! Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. This episode is a continuation of our conversation with Don that you can hear in episode six, titled The Ups and Downs of the Production Business. In part two, Don shares how to get documentaries funded and what it takes to bring VR productions to life in the private sector and then have them distributed on the social platforms. So, all right, the the consortium time was amazing. We don't have to uh, talk about it more if you listen to the Backstage Project podcast. You hear a lot about Olympics. It's kind of something that uh, definitely defined uh, the middle part of my career. Uh, and a lot of my guests have that theme. That I'm thinking about our next session that we have with Steve McAllister. And uh, we're going to talk about Olympics too. But he was on the Yahoo side. A little more of the adversarial relationship on the digital, which we're trying to get into as well with, with the podcast series. But looking at a lot of what has you've spent your time on over the last 25 years, you know, save for that maybe consortium period, you know, you've been an independent producer and I know you were an independent producer even before that a little bit. So I'm really curious and you've touched on it a bunch today, but we haven't really gotten to the heart of it. So I'm, I'm really curious about that business model and about how these projects, you know, kind of come to life. And then I would like to cover off how the Canadian media fund intersects with this independent production world. I'm not gonna ask you all about how the Canadian Media Fund gets funded, people can look that up. Right. But more about what it's like being you know, Don Young, who in many cases is relying on the Canadian Media Fund to support your business, separate from maybe some other work, and just maybe help the audience understand what it's like for independent producers who are depending on the Canadian Media Fund and who needs to be their best friends in order for them to kind of make a living uh, in that world? Well, to answer your question about the business model, it's a dysfunctional business model. That's why the banks hate lending money to production companies. Uh, The only bank that's ever done a deep dive into the media industry is RBC, and they have a really good uh, media division, and they totally get it. But banks are hesitant to lend money to production companies because it's... It's not a sane business model, Uh, especially not, you know, for documentary makers. And, you know, I I don't want to sound, you know, cynical about this, but making a documentary, quote unquote, is more of a hobby than it is a business. You either have to marry well, like we said at the start of the conversation, you either have to have a dentist as your partner, or you have to have the courage to borrow against any equity you have in your house because you know the the truth is um you know the 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 documentary world here in canada is dominated by sort of an aristocracy of production companies and the commissioning editors the gatekeepers give work to people they trust right because the gatekeepers like their jobs they all make 100 dollars a year and you rarely get fired for saying no but you get fired for saying yes, and it fucks up. And then your boss says, who the heck commissioned this crap, you know? So, you know, you're on the street and they don't want to do that because life on the street is pretty nasty. So my advice to young documentary makers is to, first of all, learn how to budget properly and to learn kind of, again, you know, to look to the future 
and to see different models of financing. So the traditional model of financing that, that I come from is, you know, you and I would, you know, come up with an idea and we would put some unpaid labor into shaping the idea and maybe finding a host and, you know, writing up pitch documents and stuff like this. We get in to see a gatekeeper at a network. We do the pitch. We'd leave them with some documents and we would hope that, that the pitch fit the business model of the channel. And as part of our due diligence before we went in, we would know. You know, I, I, I can't tell you the number of pitches I had when I was at the Olympics that were good stories. You know, they were great stories, but they just didn't fit the niche, the business model, the, the, the type of storytelling that we were trying to do. You know, for Vancouver, I probably had 20 people pitching me the effect of the Vancouver games on the homeless guys on the lower east side of Vancouver. Great story, and God bless the people who tell those stories, but clearly it wasn't anything the consortium was going to do. And the mistake those producers made was they didn't do their homework before the pitch. So, you know, if you and I are going in to see Discovery, we do our homework beforehand and we know, you know, we actually watch the Discovery Channel. We actually watch history. And when you watch the channels, you watch the credits at the end. And you don't watch them just to see if your buddy got a job on the show because the credits tell you where the money comes from. So we watch the credits. We shape our pitch to fit the business niche of the channel. And then we go on and we hope that we can do a good song and dance. And then, you know, there's a saying in my business, the good news is they want to buy your project. The bad news is they want to buy your project because once you get that little whisper of a sale, then the real work starts because then you have to figure out where the money comes from. You know, setting aside the entire universe of actually having to do the project, once you have a broadcast partner, where does the money come from? Generally, the, the rule of thumb is you get, you'd be lucky to get 30% of your budget. So let's just say, you know, in our hypothetical world, you and I have a documentary that costs $100,000. And that would be a cheap doc. Usually most docs are three hundred dollars to 400000 But just for the conversation, just for the easy math, let's just say we have $100,000. So we pitch History or Discovery or one of the cable channels. They say, we love this idea, Don and Mark. We're going to give you $30,000. So then you and I have to say, okay, that's great. Where does the other $70,000 come from? So where does that money come from? Uh, the tax credits, and I, I don't think you want to get into the tax credits now because it's, it's too detailed, but there's a reason that there's so much production going on in Manitoba because Manitoba has this great big tax credit system, which is roughly, very roughly about 40%, which means if we hire a Manitoba... A craft person, a camera guy, or you know, a sound person, or a musician, we get forty percent of their money back. So, as producers of our hypothetical documentary, we know we've got thirty thousand dollars from the channel. So then we do the math and we look at the tax credit coming back from the agencies, which will, if you're lucky, bring in another 
30 to 40 thousand dollars that still leaves you and me 20 or 30 thousand dollars short to get our budget that's where the cnf comes in and hopefully you know you'll fit the right genre and the right slice of the the cmf and the cmf money you know is taxpayers money is cable subscribers money and so then the cnf comes in with that missing amount of money and, and then again, if, if we find ourselves a little bit short, we start looking at international sales. You know, we, we see if we can sell it into the US or the UK or France or Germany or some of the big markets. So, you know, the whole act of putting the financing together is magic. You know, it's like going into Merlin's kitchen and somehow a creature emerges or maybe Frankenstein is a better analogy. Somehow this creature lurches out and, and then you actually have to make the project and hope that nothing goes wrong. And then once it's made, you have to hope that people buy it. So the world of independent production, it's incredibly exciting um, because we all have ideas and we all want to see if we can bring them to life. But it's also in fraught with tripwires and it's incredibly stressful. And now, you know, in, in this time where Facebook and Instagram and all these streamers emerging, the, 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 the traditional, I, I don't even know what the right words are to use anymore, the quote, traditional broadcast financing model is out the window. And, you know, yeah. and let's, Netflix, uh, yeah, you know? let's, let's look at that for a second. I mean, I think that we, and we've seen We've seen companies pop up in Canada who are in that model that you're talking about trying to get carriage on networks. Um, one recently, and I haven't talked to him about it, but you know, Scott Orr of CBC and, and Sportsnet and Rogers you know, started a production company um, with, with Drake. Um, that is the Canadian division of LeBron James uninterrupted brand. That is better. That is better than being married to a dentist. Yes, yes. And then they did have some financing from venture capital. But a lot of that, very quickly, that deal, uh, that deal landed at TSN, where TSN did some kind of a deal. It sounds like it's around carriage, this traditional model. Um, but also there's that, that reach and distribution that's available to being part of a bigger brand, which, which I think is very rare from the Canadian marketplace. So kudos to those folks for reinventing the model. But when, when we look at the system now, we look at distribution, we look at Netflix and Facebook, um, we're, we're thinking about, they're not paying into the CMF. They're not paying into, into the fund. And I know this is well documented within the files of the broadcasters and the CRTC, let alone supporting local journalism and news and all those other topics that are, are very relevant today um, that not going to bother you with the written journalism conversation. That's a career that you had when you were 20 years old. But you have actually benefited. I don't know to what degree, but you have benefited from, I know, Facebook specifically. I don't know how much you can talk about it, but we have a friend in common, a good friend, who um, liked your pitch or maybe he came to you. I'm not really sure of how it all came together, but you were very quick to get behind VR. Again, always looking for what's happening and what's coming, you know, that's you, Don, and you found, I'm not going to call it a niche, but the, the medium is drastically different 
than what we're used to. Um, the way the audience interacts with the content is like no other content really. I mean, it really compares to 3D, but 3D was different um, because it wasn't meant for mobile, whereas VR I mean, it is. And you know, Facebook has bought Oculus, the, the goggles. And so talk to us about that, that world of working with, you know, a giant of media, you know, the biggest, basically Facebook is the largest media company on the planet. Although outside of maybe working with you, they don't really have any of their own content, but talk to us a little bit about that and how that came together. And um, if you will, you know, where you think that's going. Well, kind of two things there. So Facebook and VR. So, you know, we were very lucky to, uh, to, to produce content for Facebook clients. And the way that would work is something like, you know, the Canadian Screen Awards or the Design Exchange Awards or the CFL would come to Facebook and say, uh, you know, we want to create content to be streamed out to, uh, to people who click on the CFL site. Or, no, I'll give you a better example. Um, uh, we worked with uh, Tennis Canada last, the past few years, and Tennis Canada is very aggressive in new media building the brand of the athletes, building their, you know, their stamp in the, their, their niche in the sports world. So during the Rogers Cup last year, we produced daily content uh, for the seven or eight days, however long it was, from the, the arena, from, you know, the, the Rogers Cup uh, up, up uh, York University. And everything we created was streamed out via Facebook and landed on partner sites. So, you know, Wilson Rackets on their site, this kind of little quasi show that we would do would land on the Wilson Rackets or the Spalding site or the Rogers site or the York, you know, whoever had bought carriage on Facebook. So it were the Rogers Cup, you know, they would call Facebook and say, okay, you know, they would make their deal. And then they'd say, okay, well, who do you know who's out there who can produce content, the type of content that we want? And that work came to us. So we did probably 30 or 40 of these Facebook bits of content for different, all sorts of A-list clients, you know, really, really good clients. But, you know, for me as a producer, the downside of that, there's sort of two downsides. First of all, the budgets are small. I can't remember what the Rogers Cup budget would have been, but it would have been, I think, easily under $50,000. And out of that money, we'd have to hire camera guys and lighting people and audio people and build a little set and, and hotel rooms and per diems and parking and all the line item costs that go into any budget. Uh, so our kind of margin on a Facebook project would be maybe 20%. And, you know, which in the independent world, you aim for a margin of 30 to 40% or more. So doing a service deal through Facebook or Instagram, it's great, you know, profiling. It's great to have a blue chip client like that. But as an independent production company, it's not a moneymaker. And then secondly, of course, we didn't own any of the content. So it's not like we could do, you know, we interviewed Bianca a bunch of times. We have all this fantastic behind the scenes stuff with Bianca that we couldn't sell. 
you know, I actually got a call after the Rogers Cup from one of the channels saying, oh, we saw everything you were streaming. Oh, that Bianca stuff is fantastic. Can you repurpose that and cut it into a half hour doc for us? And of course I had to say no, because it wasn't our stuff. And I could have sold that half hour doc for 50 or $60,000, but we couldn't do that. Well, so it's kind of, a, kind of a mixed blessing working for the Instagrams, unless, and the Facebooks, unless you can have the, the Steve Holford, who we both know and respect a lot, and Steve runs the What If Facebook Watch brand. And if you can create content and get yourself a Facebook Watch micro channel that suddenly has a million people coming to it, then you know, you can certainly make money in, in those kind of professional relationships. But sort of old media guys like me who are used to a network model, despite working at the Journal and the CBC and Morningside, you know, all these great, great old world mainstream media, I, I have to be looking, you know, to the future. Hence, that's why we invested our own money. And we probably put fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 into VR, you know, by by going on training courses. You know, our producer, Dave, went down to New York and for 10 days and took a sort of a VR training course. And then we would software license and we bought God knows how many headsets because every year there's a different headset coming out. And then we started creating our own VR content. And to be really honest, your guess is as good as mine, whether we're actually going to see any value because until the hero device, until the really cool X-Wing fighter Star Wars headset comes onto the market, we lose a lot of VR business because of the box on the face phenomenon. That's People better. don't like to put that headset on, you know, and it's difficult, you know, for them to navigate through the sub menus and they get frustrated and tired and they take it off and then their hair is a mess. And, uh, you know, and then it's just like one huge hassle after another. So, uh, well, I've seen a, I've seen a black mirror episode. If you've watched any of that show, I, I'm sure it's just, we could put contact lenses on our eyes and it, it, the world right. will be VR. It'll be so much easier. Will be there'll be glasses, you know. There'll be this 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 coming together of Google glasses, and I, I hear actually that Apple is very soon to release an Apple headset, VR AR headset, not just VR but AR as well. Yeah, and that's AR is where I've spent more of my focus in, in the application of it. Not that VR isn't amazing it's just there's so many limitations to how we can use it without all of these issues that you were talking right. about so this, is, this has been great John. But, but let me yeah. let me just yeah. if you don't mind let, let me yeah. just kind of put a sort of a, a counter counterintuitive point to that the thing about vr is that the mistakes that producers like me and many others are making is we're trying to use it in an old media model you know, we're thinking of it as a 360 old world experience. Uh, and it's not. We've got to break that. We've got to take that thought out of our mind and realize that VR is a completely different form of media. And I'll give you two examples. And I'll keep, keep it brief, Mark, because I could talk for half an hour on VR. And no, I'll keep course. it brief. So I would urge your listeners to uh, check out two VR pieces. 
uh, and you can, you know, you can get to them on your laptop and just use your your mouse to scroll around. But the, to get the real effect, obviously, you've got to be in, in the VR space. So the first was uh, is a piece called Accused Number Two, and it was done by Arte, a big French broadcaster, and it's the Nelson Mandela trial in Cape Town in 1962, the Ravonia trial, where Walter Susulu and Nelson Mandela and a bunch of others went on trial for their lives, charged with terrorism. And all the producers had to work with were fragments of the BBC radio report from that time. No video, no pictures, no old news reels, nothing. No still photos, nothing. And what the producers did was they got together with some graphic artists and they created this incredible universe of charcoal faces. And the camera is the quote unquote camera because it's not a camera, it's the VR uh, render, but it zooms around the recreation of the courtroom and it goes through, out the window and into the townships and up into the sky and over the whites houses and the black shanties and then back into the courtroom and there's a wonderful soundscape and music scape and they have actors voice actors playing roles you know the judge and the accused and the courtroom a wonderful montage of sound and the vr film lasts for about 20 minutes and it's totally totally riveting the, the other piece, and so definitely check that out, it's called Accused Number Two. And the other piece I'd urge people to listen to is done by a Montreal production company, a VR production company, and it's called Beyond Life. And it's a drama, it's a VR drama. And it's set in a home, in a, in a house, like an NDG or in Miles End or something like that. And the opening shot is again you gotta like see it in the vr space so you're in a bathroom right and there's a bathtub full of water and you hear splashing and there's obviously a kid in that you don't there's no kid you know in the image but you, in your mind's eye you see the child splashing around and laughing and then the camera looks to the door and you hear the mom downstairs going are you okay are you okay silence then Mom runs up the stairs and this is all audio. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And what happens in the drama is the child dies, drowns in the bath. And then the rest of the drama is, and there's a, sorry, I'll, I'll, get to the, I'll get to the point. There's a twist at the end of the story. So the rest of the drama is what happens in the house in the moments after this, the argument between the mom and dad and the calling of the police and the other kids and then the cop comes and then what's happening and this and that. And you're in the headset and it's really, really well put together and really well acted. And you're looking back and forth between the dad and the mom and the kid and the cops and you're wondering what's happening. And then, then it ends. So that's the drama, just a little slice of life. Now, here's the twist. What you don't know when you're in the VR space is the headset is monitoring your eye motion. So it's keeping track of who you're looking at. So when the mom and dad are having a just a knock, knock them down, drag them out argument, who are you looking at? Are you looking at the dad? 
Are you looking at the mum? Are you subconsciously making little nods with your head that we all do when we agree with somebody or not? And then at the end of the film, a sound map or a cloud map comes up on the screen that tells you where you were looking and it gives you a kind of a snapshot of your values, your personal values, as you went through this riveting, harrowing 20 minute drama. And well, the budget you, you had it, me, you got me, Don. I mean, that's, I gotta go watch this thing. The budget <laughs> on it was $500,000, was half a million dollars. And it was financed by McGill, by the Department of Psychology at McGill, because they wanted to know how how observers would react emotionally and in a normative sense to something horrific like this. So that really caught my interest, Mark, because half a million bucks, you know, the producers probably made a $100,000, $150,000 profit on it. Plus, it's a completely different way of financing. So all I'd really want to say to your listeners is when you're thinking of VR, look to the future. Don't be pitching old world VR kind of current affairs treatments done in 360 because nobody wants that and they're all pretty shitty. You have, uh, my friend, you have got to teach a class, write a book, do a lecture series, a master class on the, the education that you've provided today. And I know you've done a lot of this over your career, but um, you have to, we're sharing it here through the Backstage uh, Project podcast, but um, there's, there's a lot for you to tell and you, you've earned all of it uh, as we've gone through today. I wanted to close off with a couple questions that we were just asking all of our guests. You can appreciate that as a storyteller. Uh, so let's start with this one. So if you had to pick one moment uh, in your career, which one would you say is the most memorable? When I was in Bhopal, India, after the gas Union Carbide gas disaster, and uh, we went to the hospital, tiny hospital uh, with maybe 100 beds and 5,000 people jammed in there. People dead and dying, vomiting, shitting, uh, all crammed into the hallways. And we just followed the, the emergency doctor, young guy. We just went POV uh, as we walked through that and watched the doctor for half an hour do triage with all these poor folks. That absolutely stayed with me. And the other thing was eating a grilled cheese sandwich with Ella Fitzgerald in the uh, her hotel room at the Royal York when I was working in radio just before we did the interview. So that was pretty cool as well. Well, and thanks for providing very contrasting experiences. <laughs> um, but uh, I can absolutely appreciate how sites like the one you described uh, in the hospital, you know, you just, you can't, you can't shake them at all. Uh, it's amazing the, the things that journalists do to get the story, to bring it to Canadian audiences. And the last question we have, and you have answered this about a hundred times already in the last hour of us chatting, uh, but I'd like to see if you can maybe um, put it into a soundbite, which is looking back on the early days of your career, you know, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? What do I wish uh, I knew then that I knew now? Um, I, I wish that I had, you know, realized that everything that we do is uh, ephemeral. It passes quickly and people forget 
And the, the, you know, I've done 30 or 40 one hour docs through my various production companies. And the most depressing part of any production cycle was the day after the piece went to air. And I'd meet somebody and they'd say, oh yeah, I saw your piece last night. Yeah, it was pretty good. But listen, I gotta go and I gotta go shopping and I gotta, gotta do this and gotta do that. And somehow I expected that the world would have changed and it didn't. And I, I wish I'd realized that what we do is uh, a privilege. It's a lot of fun, but it is incredibly disruptive with your family life and the folks you love and the folks you really care about. And I wished I'd made maybe different choices, Mark. You know, I, I wished I'd done, you know, I wished I hadn't spent all those Christmas days at work, maybe spent more time at home. Not, not to get too maudlin and too depressing. No, no, Dom. But I think, and you've done a marvelous job today of showing, you know, the highs and the lows and all, and many points in between of a very exciting career. It sounds exhilarating, many of the things you did and are continuing to do. I know we all know, you know, any of us with any experience who are listening to this podcast, we all know that life is not perfect, although we like to think that when we're looking on Facebook and Instagram. TikTok is perfect, so I will defend TikTok. <laughs> Um, but Don, you know, the, what the point, uh, you just made about the day after the production, it just, it struck a chord with me that I wanted to share with you and the audience, which was, um, the day after the, the Olympics in 2010, that would have been March 1st, 2010. And, uh, someone who are, is also near and dear to you, Mark LeBlanc, who actually still works at Rogers, uh, as, as a filming of, of this or recording this session. So him and I, um, went for a stroll, uh, on March the 1st and you brought up you brought up East Hastings and the homelessness in Vancouver a little while ago when you were talking about what you're being pitched on. Well, the one thing that occurred to us as we were walking around on March the 1st was, you know, all of the security was gone. The, the, the mag and bag, the, that security that is a, a part of any kind of a international gathering like an Olympics, that was gone. And then the folks that were pushed away from, you know, the downtown core, the, the gas town area, those East Hastings labeled people. I mean, those folks were, were present and the real Vancouver began to emerge. And it was, while it was both an awakening because we had lived in this bubble for about a month, the month of the month of February of 2010. And, and it, it occurred to me because I, I hadn't really been to Vancouver much before the Olympics. I have certainly been back a lot after it really, it, I really found a connection there, but um, I didn't really know Vancouver during that Olympics. It wasn't reality. And even though, you know, the, your talent and Gord and Rick and many others, you know, showed Vancouver to not to Canadians in a way that we never imagined it could be shown. Um, it's not the Vancouver that Vancouver really is. And, and I think that's the part that has a little bit of a lasting effect on me, which is it's not, it wasn't reality. Although it was amazing for us to live that for, you know, four weeks and 17 days. And, and I really admire my time with you and with others that are there. And I couldn't thank you enough for taking the time to take a trip down memory lane and, and much further uh, today with us on the Backstage Project podcast. Good. Well, it's glad to help. And thank you for the invitation to be part. And I will, uh, I will be a listener. So good luck with the podcast, guys. The Backstage Project podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go!, they help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, 
please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.